In the seventh millennium of time, a tribe of humanoids engaged in a terrifying conflict against a race of machines. The humans lost. Now, led by the last surviving warship, the mighty Battlestar Galactica, a handful of survivors move slowly across the heavens in search of their ancestral brothers. A tribe of humans, known throughout ancient records to be located somewhere on a distant, shining planet. A planet called Earth. Tonight's episode comes about thanks to discussions with the mighty Fire and Water Network's Shag Matthews. I'm going to turn my attention to a science fiction licensed comic book series that spun out of a popular theatrical feature film and into comics form in the late 1970s. Said comic was published by Marvel and featured a huge contribution from industry legend Walt Simonson. I am, of course, talking about Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica was a phenomenally expensive television series created by Glenn A. Larson and distributed by Universal Pictures. Glenn Larson was one of TV's most prolific and entertaining producers. Nicknamed Glenn Larceny by Harlan Ellison for his propensity for ripping off movies and putting them on television, Butch Cassidy became alias Smith & Jones, but Reynolds Hooper formed the basis of The Fall Guy, Coogan's Bluff became McLeod, etc., etc., Larson was not afraid to remake a movie on the small screen. However, Larson maintains that the production of Galactica so soon after Star Wars was merely coincidence and was actually the result of his dusting off one of his old unsold screenplays entitled Adam's Ark. Originally developed as a series of TV movies, Galactica debuted on ABC television in North America on Sunday the 17th of September 1978, taking the place of the recently cancelled The Six Million Dollar Man. However, in the wake of the success of Star Wars, and spurred on by how good the rushes looked, ABC ordered the show to a full one-hour series. The original three-hour opening pilot episode, entitled The Saga of a Star World, is reputed to have cost a then-whopping, and still eye-watering, $12 million. And this was in 1978. To put this into perspective, Star Wars itself only cost $9 million. I spelt out the premise of the show in the opening saga cell, where I did my best not to impersonate Patrick McNee. The series followed the benevolent dictatorship of the fleet by Galactica's Commander Adama, played by Lorne Green, and two hotshot fighter pilots, Adama's son, Captain Apollo, played by Richard Hatch, and Rogue with a Heart, Lieutenant Starbuck, played by Dirk Benedict. There was also a large cast of supporting characters, all with spacey-sounding names like Cassiopeia, Athena and Boomer. Galactica was quite a diverse cast for the time, with two people of colour, Terry Carter's Colonel Ty and Herb Jefferson Jr.'s Boomer, and a number of women, Marin Jensen as Athena, Lorette Spang as Cassiopeia, and later Anne Lockhart as Sheba, featuring in the sprawling cast. 
To recoup some of the losses of this spectacular TV venture, Universal released an edited version of the pilot into cinemas in Canada and then around the rest of the world in the summer of 1978, not only bringing in some of that lucrative Star Wars money, but also beating a number of the other Star Wars knockoffs into the cinemas in the process. Released in surround sound, Galactica did well enough in cinemas that not only was a sequel produced for Worldwide Cinematic Expedition, the original, in a classic Cold to Newcastle situation, was also released theatrically in the US. I first saw Galactica in its sequel form. It became the norm for TV pilots and spliced together episodes of successful television shows to be released as movies or support features in other territories around the world. The Man from Uncle, The Adventures of Superman, The Incredible Hulk and The Amazing Spider-Man all had episodes repackaged as cheap afternoon matinees. Mission Galactica, The Cylon Attack, as the sequel was called, was released as a double bill with the original pilot movie for Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and I saw both of these at my local Flea Pit Cinema. I have to admit, despite the derivative nature of Galactica, although it has to be said no more derivative than Star Wars itself, I liked the film. Actually, three TV episodes sewn together. I got a huge kick out of the Vipers, the Galacticans fighter jet of choice, and still my favourite TV spaceship. The Uriel dogfights, with them taking on the Cylon Raiders, were well done and reminiscent of Star Wars. With John Dykstra, Richard Edland, Dennis Murin, Ken Ralston and Joe Johnston providing effects work, the similarities were no doubt intentional. I enjoyed the music, a nice bombastic score by Stu Phillips, and I liked the Cylons and the overall look of the show. The cast were personable, with Benedict's character Starbuck being a favourite, and if the ropey dialogue or loose relationship with real science was even noticed by my eight-year-old self, it didn't spoil my enjoyment. As is the norm with me, and I suspect you too, lovely listener, I started to investigate further, and I discovered two things. One, this was a TV show. Universal released the movie theatrically, which meant they'd held back the sales of the TV show worldwide so as not to hurt the profits of the movie. And two, it was a comic book. Yes, Marvel, who'd had a huge hit on their hands with the comic version of Star Wars, had quickly snapped up the rights to a comic adaptation. I rented the original movie, and I liked that even more than the sequel film, although I was a little confused as to how a character that I'd seen in the sequel, Alive and Well, was apparently beheaded in the first film. Whilst the series would eventually make its way to my ITV region in 1983-84, meaning that Dirk Benedict was on TV twice a week, essentially playing the same character on both this and the AT, I discovered the Marvel Super Special Battlestar Galactica movie adaptation. The magazine-sized comic book had an absolutely gorgeous cover by Bob Larkin. No fool me, I quickly realised that this adaptation bore little resemblance to the one I'd seen on video. Marvel had based the super special on an earlier version of the script, and that was changed substantially in the editing process. So much so that actress Jane Seymour was shocked to see her character Serena not only lived through the story, but that she never had cancer at all. Something she only learned when she watched the show. This was not the only change. The character I had seen beheaded in the pilot film, Baltar, played by John Colicos, was murdered far more brutally in the comic. Other changes to be found in the super special are that Serena has her original name, Lyra, and Cassiopeia dies in the Ovian Mines. It's hard to recommend the super special to any but the most die-hard Galactica fans. It's very rushed, the colouring is awful, and the characters seem to be changed on the fly. Colonel Tyke seems to have been drawn a Caucasian and then swiftly recoloured. Apollo frequently has blonde hair. The costumes change in between panels, and it's incredibly difficult to read. I've been reading comics since I was five, yet there were places in this book where I read the wrong panel, or couldn't follow the progression of the word balloons. It does feature some nice text pieces and posters that are worth a look, but Ernie Cullen's art in the main story is very inconsistent. In the UK, the Battlestar comic series was originally supposed to feature as a backup strip in Star Wars Weekly, as Des Skin, then editor of Marvel UK, felt they were a good fit. But the subsequent lawsuit from Lucas against Larson about Galactica's similarities to Star Wars canned that idea. 
The Galactica comic was instead serialised in the Star Heroes pocketbook, alongside Bill Mantle and Michael Golden's Micronaut work in late 1980, early 1981, before the series started erring on British television. Marvel UK chose to skip directly over to issue 4, the adaptation of the film being available as a paperback book. The success of the show in the US, however, meant that Marvel got the opportunity to do a monthly comic book series based on the series. And the first thing they did was make a special edition of the adaptation, amending, updating and altering the problems and representing them as the first three issues of the regular monthly comic. The three issues had separate titles, with issue one being Battlestar Galactica, issue two Exodus and issue three Death Trap. The adaptation, as presented here, is a marked improvement on the Super Special. Although some pages are direct lifts, the art is recoloured, and the expanded page count afforded three regular issues allows for added pages and scenes, reinstating important moments and allowing the story to breathe. Cullen's art is still spotty, but it's much better than the Super Special. The covers for the three issues, however, can't hold a candle to the Bob Larkin painted cover of the Special, although all three are dramatic in their own right. Issue 1 by Dave Cockrum and Bob McLeod sees the Cylons attack Caprica. Issue 2 by Cockrum and Joe Rubenstein is a melodramatic piece of a Cylon raider attacking the Galactica's hangar bays as Adama, Apollo, Serena, Boxy and Boxy's robot dog Muffet pose dramatically. Issue 3 by Cockrum and Rudy Nibrez has a very muscular Cylon point his weapon right in Boxy's face. All the issues are written by Roger McKenzie. Mackenzie stuck around for issues 4 and 5, both of which were also adaptations of TV episodes The Lost Planet of the Gods Parts 1 and 2. These issues see Walt Simonson join the book as penciler and Klaus Janssen as inker. Simonson has a wonderfully scratchy style that I occasionally love and just as occasionally dislike intensely. Janssen is the very definition of acquired taste. He's great over Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. Awful over other artists, and fucking dreadful when he's penciling and inking his own work. Oddly, the combination of Simonson and Jansen here works very well. The cover to issue 4 is great. It's a close-up of a Viper with the young female pilot visible in the cockpit, with a Cylon Raider burring down on her. Issue 5 has more female pilots being attacked on the surface of Kobol. I only mention that the pilots are women because, according to this really rather sexist story, women aren't pilots in the Galactican fleet, which seems really odd for a progressive society like that that is portrayed here. All the male pilots have been wiped out by a weird virus, leaving only Starbuck and Apollo to train the women of the fleet to act as first line of defence. Meanwhile, the Galactica has entered a void discovered by Apollo and Starbuck that will not only lead them away from a Cylon garrison, but towards the mythical planet of Kobol. As Apollo and Starbuck train the neophyte pilots, Dr. Salek must find a cure before the disease wipes out the fleet. Simonson's art is more dynamic than Colan's. His drawing of the Galactica, the Vipers and the Cylon Raiders is more frenetic and exciting. His depictions of the characters more in keeping with actors, without being slavish to photo reference, due mostly to the fact that Marvel didn't have likeness rights. That these episodes can be adapted into one issue, and in such a faithful way, shows how good comics writing was back then. Nowadays, this would be a four-issue story. Also, is this the first time a TV episode has been adapted into a comic? There have been movie adaptations forever, and photo novels, obviously, but I don't recall a TV show being given this comic book adaptation treatment before or since. I'm sure somebody out there will let me know if this isn't the case. There are still some oddities in the comic book. The Egyptian-style helmets the pilots wore not only have the characters' names on them, but they're red and white instead of golden, and there seems to be more detail about the Lords of Kobol and the Thirteen Colonies than in the actual episode. It's left ambiguous if Baltar is on the side of the Angels, which is a nice touch, although he's left here buried under rubble. Serena is still killed by the Cylons, and the comic has a far more sudden death for her, without the saccharine deathbed vigil seen in the episode. Following this adaptation, Marvel went their own way, but followed the plot of this episode with the Galactica staying in the void, something that didn't happen on the show. The reasons for this are curious, with most sources saying it's because for, whatever reason, Marvel only had the rights to characters and situations seen in these first five shows, so we couldn't see any of the clones from the Gun and Ice Planet Zero, nor could they use some of the more interesting characters introduced in the latter half of the series, like Sheba, Boje, the Borellian Gnomon, or the Eastern Alliance. 
It's a big shame, this, because Walt Simon has said one of the stories he wanted to do in the comic was a two- or three-part adventure about what the Battlestar Pegasus was up to after the episode The Living Legend, only to be told that they didn't have the rights to do that. Still, issue six sees the Marvel Galactica forge its own path. Despite promising us in the letters page that Mackenzie, Simonson and Jansen were the regular creative team, this issue was pencilled by Rich Buckler. There would be a revolving door of creators for the first half a dozen issues, and Simonson's run on the comic would only kick in properly with issue 11. He even found himself a scripter when writer Roger McKenzie jumped ship. The cover's pretty good. It's by Buckler and Jansen. It's the first poster image of the series, showing the main characters, Apollo and Starbuck, blasting away as a Cylon hovers menacingly over a planet, and the Galactica and a Viper Patrol fight off a Cylon attack. The memory machine picks up a few hours later. Serena's body is given a burial in the bright red sun of Cobol, and we are treated to a humanising moment. Boxy tells Muffet to be brave, as warriors don't cry, but we see Apollo watching the casket burn up as he sheds a few tears. Starbuck is also blaming himself for Serena's death. These moments show how comics were much better than the TV of the time. Plots are allowed to continue, characters are allowed to remember previous events. On the show, Serena was really mentioned again, and we definitely didn't see moments of grief like these. The Galactica continues into the void, as Lucifer, the Cylon with the diaphanous head who sounds like Dr. Smith from Lost in Space, finds Baltar dying. Unlike in the show, he lets him die. The comic also keeps Sire Yuri around as part of the Quorum of the Twelve, Galactica's parliamentary body. After the pilot, Yuri was never seen again on the show, Ray Milland presumably being too expensive a guest star. But giving Adama a regular adversary isn't a bad thing. Yuri, being a bastard, wants to leave the slower ships behind, but Adama maintains his stance. There are too few humans left to choose to kill off others. He asks the maintenance technician Shadrach, who will become a semi-regular character in the comic book, although he's never seen in the TV show, to bring all of the ships of the fleet up to light speed capabilities. Here again, the comic answers a question we viewers had about the show. If the Galactica can only move as fast as the slowest ship, they aren't going to get very far. The comic solves this problem here quickly and cleanly. Yuri then demands proof that Adama can get them to Earth. Adama only glimpsed the coordinates, but they are in his mind, and as such he decides to enter a memory machine. This is apparently used by the Galactican military as a device that pries open the mind of traitors and saboteurs. Delightful. Adama feels he can use this to peel back his memories and see the way to Earth. However, once he steps into the machine, he can only exit when he's found what he's looking for. Colonel Ty has also had some bad news. He's discovered two ships of the fleet suspiciously missing, and then Apollo learns that Yuri is staging a coup. He is arranged to be the new president of the Council of the Twelve. This was a pretty great first original issue, much better than the first episode of the show, a rip-off of Shane that demonstrated the show's desire to be a rather staid wannabe western, rather than focus on character and high-octane science fiction like the comic. Art is serviceable, Buckler's a good draftsman, and it's nice to see him doing something where he can't swipe every other panel, but the action lacks Simonson's kineticism. Issue 7, All Things Past and Present, opens with a memory machine fueled flashback of Adama and Baltar 25 Yarens ago. They are engaged in this futuristic sword fight, and we learn that even 25 years ago Adama was prematurely grey. This is all prelude to Yuri taking command of the Galactica, which brings up Galactica's bizarre political situation. On the show, Adama was the supreme commander, but he answered to the Quorum of the Twelve. As the series went on, the Quorum disappeared, basically leaving the colonies under the command of the military. The show never bothered to do anything with this intriguing idea. We'd have to wait for the early 2000s version for that. But here Yuri is elected to be president of the Quorum and also commander of the Galactica. How the hell does that work? Of course, he's up to nefarious deeds, trying to kill Adamo while he's stealing the memory machine, but Apollo is on to him. However, in attempting to prevent Yuri's murder of Adama, Apollo inadvertently causes a firefight that leads to the controls being irreparably damaged. According to an interview on Newsarama, Simonson at this point was contracted to provide the art for the comics adaptation of Alien, and as such we are subjected to three more fill-in stories that don't progress the main plot at all. At least the previous two issues were still written by Roger McKenzie. 
Here, Bill Mantlo, Marvel's go-to writer for quick fill-in issues during the 70s, and Sal Buscema, Marvel's go-to artist for fill-in issues during the 70s, join Inca Klaus Janssen for shuttle diplomacy. A flashback story to Adama and Ty before they were commander and first officer of the Galactica. It's a Twilight Zone-esque style story about robots gaining sentience and man's over-reliance on technology that would have worked better as an episode of Book Rogers or the early 2000s Galactica spin-off Caprica. Issue 9 is again by Mantelo, Buscema and Jansen and is called Space Mimic, which blends two staples of TV science fiction, the shape-shifting Mimic, see Space 1999, and the evil entity that possesses via touch, see the Space Vampire episode of Book Rogers. Cue lots of which is the real Cassiopeia scenes and running around corridors trying to catch the entity. There's a really daft bit where the Mimic can take on Adama's form through contact with the memory machine circuitry, which flatly contradicts how it's said to have operated so far, where it's shown to have to touch the person that it takes possession of the form of. In addition, the crew's adoration for Adama is laid on like treacle on toast. This causes an emotional overload in the creature who is unable to destroy Adama's kids, and he explodes. It's not a great issue, and the art is perfunctory. Issue 10 by Tom DeFalco, Pat Broderick, Ed Barreto and Pablo Marcos at least has better art. Broderick's depictions of the Galactica, the Vipers and the battle scenes are some of the best scenes so far, but the story is yet another flashback. It opens with a number of errors. Number one, on the cover Apollo is ripped out of his Viper yet seems to have no problem breathing in the vacuum of space. And two, the Vipers are apparently decontaminated as they enter the Galactica's landing bays. If this were true, issues four and five couldn't have happened. Number three, how does Adama remember a deep space patrol he wasn't part of? In fact, most of this story's events Adama couldn't remember because he wasn't there. Apollo and Starbuck encounter a living planet like Ego or Pandora. Now, technically, our planet is a living planet, but not in the sense postulated here. And this kind of sentient planet has been poo-pooed by scientists as being highly unlikely. Still, this is science fiction, although the story contradicts itself again by establishing that the pilots do need decontamination. Apollo and Starbuck have brought back another alien virus, just as the Cylons are burring down on them. Apollo returns to the planet, where he discovers this is actually a Star Trek plot, where the planet just wants to be friends. It helps the Galactica destroy the Cylons, but Adama blames himself for the situation. These three issues, so early in the strip's run, can't have helped with its reputation or sales figures. Still, issue 11, Scavenge World, finally sees the return of Mackenzie, Simonson and Jansen, and any belief that the last three issues were fill-ins is supported by the idea that they can be skipped over completely as the story flows from issue 7 to here with nary a blip. Still, for the fourth issue in a row, we recap what happened back in issue 7, which is starting to be a tad tiresome, meaning that this storyline has now dragged on for four months with no forward momentum. The implication that this should have been issue 8 is on the splash. Not only does the recap continue straight on from that issue's cliffhanger, but the controls that were destroyed in that issue trapping Adama are still sparking. Page 3 takes place a week later, which is presumably when issues 8 through 10 occur. The Viper pilots are still trying to locate the missing ships, including the Argo ship, which grows the Galactica's crops. The Argo ships in the show were stock footage from Silent Running, but we don't actually see them here. Starbuck, rather stupidly, is smoking in his Viper cockpit when he finds a bizarre sight in the void. A world made up entirely of cobbled together and interlinked ships, including the fleet's Argo ship. Athena and Boomer suddenly zone out and land on the strange world. Starbuck follows. Numerous alien life forms starts ripping the Vipers to bits as Boomer and Athena carried away to Uriel, who we are ominously told gets the flesh. Starbuck pursues but loses them. He does, however, find a card game. Speaking of finding, the Cylons have somehow found the Galactica. Starbuck wins a general's insignia in the card game and he makes a deal with Uriel to free the Galacticans from the void and return their scavenged ships and people in return for all the silent technology they can plunder. Uriel wants more. In exchange for helping Adama out of the memory machine and to destroy the Cylons, she wants to keep Starbuck. Now this issue was much more like it. As with the earlier issues by this team, Scavenge World is fast, funny and action-packed, while still having numerous little character bits. 
Starbuck, being immune to the zonking, which caused Athena and Boomer to be taken out so quickly, is amusing, as is the whole predicament Starbuck finds himself in. The best Starbuck-centric episodes of the show were similar to this, in which Starbuck would blunder into a problem and then have to use his charm and above-average oral dexterity to get out of it. Starbuck was influenced by Brett Maverick, a guy who never fought his way out of a situation if he could talk his way out of it, and who tried not to get into confrontational situations at all. The comic nails Starbuck probably more so than anyone else. The cover to issue 12, The Trap, makes it look like Adama is finally getting out of that damned memory machine. Simonson starts being credited as co-plotter with this issue. The best thing about the comic is it isn't reliant on stock footage for its SFX shot, and some of Simonson's camera angles are stunning. The splash page for this issue is one such shot. The Vipers zooming from the right of the panel on the underside of the Galactica is one of those shots that remind us that space would be three-dimensional flying rather than the static straight-line shots of the show. The story carries on directly from last issue. Starbuck agonises over the decision to stay with Uriel, but a Cylon attack led by Lucifer makes his decision for him. He agrees to return to Scavenge World with her if she saves Adama and helps the fleet. That's the plot at its most basic, but that ignores the fast-paced, action-packed nature of this issue, a real tour de force for Simonson. The ensemble cast are serviced well, with Apollo, Adama, Ty, Starbuck and Uriel all being given ample moments to shine, and it's always nice to see Lucifer ordering the Cylons around. He was always more conniving and underhand, so seeing that aspect of him brought out here was a delight. Lucifer launches an all-out attack on the fleet with three base stars and a gigantic fleet of Cylon raiders, and it takes the aid of Scavenge World to help the Galacticans out. Adama is freed from the memory machine just as the third base star emerges on a kamikaze-style attack on the Galactica. These have been a far better sequence of issues than issues 8 through 10, and it's a shame this series was plagued by those three fill-ins in such short order so early into the strip's run. Issue 13, Collision Course, has the best cover of the series so far. Walt Simonson shows the Galactica being given a pummeling by the base star and the raiders. The Scavenge World story comes to an end, of sorts, in this issue, when all the plot threads from the storyline are pulled together and tied up nicely, while still leaving a few frayed edges for the future. With the Dharma back on the bridge, the battle goes better, although the Galactica is still outgunned and outnumbered. Starbuck is sitting this one out, forced to go with Uriel to Scavenge World, where he discovers something that was only previously hinted at, that Sire Yuri ordered the disappearance of the fleet ships. When Scavenge World comes across the ships, they kept the pilots, one of whom Starbuck discovered in the cells. He quickly takes the prisoner back to the Galactica to implicate Yuri. Elsewhere, Simonson keeps the action moving at a fur clip. He has an uncanny ability to draw the space dogfights as moving exceptionally fast, despite being ink on paper, and the countdown to the destruction of the fleet is handled very well. Apollo sacrifices a ship to destroy the base star, forcing Lucifer to flee, and Starbuck returns to Scavenge Land with Uriel. Adama is free, and Yuri is arrested. To be honest, after the build-up, this issue feels a little cramped. In some ways, this adds to the nature of the plot. It is very action-orientated, the battles are fast and frenetic, and the ticking clock adds well to the drama. However, there are some places with a lot of dialogue and captions, and some pages have eight and nine panels with huge gobs of dialogue, and they do feel compressed. Better than decompressed, I suppose. The ending doesn't feel rushed, but the lead-up and Starbuck's discovery of the Argo ship pilot does. Still, overall, this was an entertaining yarn. It wasn't helped by the three-month delay, but once it got going, it was as good as some of the better TV episodes, and featured some more consistent characterisation and plotting. Issue 14, Trial and Error, features Boxy and Muffet on the cover, trapped near deadly radiation. The issue itself was still written by Mackenzie and inked by Jansen, but has layouts by Jim Mooney. Mooney's influence is burly felt, to be honest, and if you'd asked me to name the artist just by looking at them alone, I would have said it was Jansen on his Todd. After ten issues, the fleet finally leaves the void in a magnificent two-page splash. Images like this were quite rare in comics of the time, and it gives a cinematic feel to the moment and its importance. As the fleet celebrates, Boxy decides to steal a viper and track down Starbuck himself. In subplot land, Dharma is in the process of getting testimony and evidence for Yuri's trial. 
The best way to secure a conviction is to call Medea, Yuri's aide, to the stand. Apollo begins his quest to find her, and he starts aboard the Rising Star, which in the comic is Yuri's ship, but in the show just became a pleasure cruiser. Apollo finds Medea just as a lynch mob is baying for her head. Medea agrees to testify, putting Yuri away. Boxy, meanwhile, is in big trouble. He's blundered into the Galactica's engine room, where the heat causes him to pass out. Muffet, the robot Daggett, drags Boxy to safety at the cost of his own life. This was surprisingly touching. On the show, Boxy and Muffet were non-entities. TV science fiction of the time had to have a kid and a robot. It was the law. But this issue makes Boxy a real flesh-and-blood character. Makes us feel... Sorry for Muffet. Well, better than anything on the TV show ever did, anyway. It's a real tearjerker. I was quite surprised. Simonson returns for issue 15, Derelict. One of the missteps of the comic has been the lack of focus on Boomer. In fact, I'd argue Starbuck's closest friend on the show was Boomer, not Apollo. With Apollo... There was still the sense that he was his superior officer, being a captain and Starbuck being a lieutenant. But Boomer and Starbuck were the same rank, so there was none of that slightly antagonistic rivalry between them. Issue 15 rectifies the Boomer issue by devoting an issue to him, as well as heavily featuring Jolly and Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia was one of those characters who became more popular on the show when the producers realised that Lorette Spang was a better actress than Marin Jensen, who played Athena. Speaking of Athena, Apollo has forbidden her from joining them on this mission because of what happened to his brother Zack. Whilst this is inordinately sexist of him, at least he remembers that he had a brother. Again, in the TV show, Zack was all but forgotten after the pilot movie. This mission should be a milk run, locate the source of an old Capricorn distress signal, but milk runs have proved deadly before, which is why Apollo leaves Athena behind. Jolly, Cassiopeia, Boomer and Apollo investigate, hoping to find some fuel or food for the depleted fleet. Again, something the TV show rarely addressed. But instead, they find an old Capricorn battle cruiser. However, the cruiser opens fire on Apollo's Viper and the shuttlecraft, so Boomer dons a spacesuit to pop over and have a look what's going on. What follows is a nice little haunted house horror story that doesn't really make a lot of sense when you start examining it. Although we do learn that the Cylons have deposited a bioweapon on the colonies that killed and then mutated whatever human survivors were left into this big slug creature thing. Boomer finds that one of the survivors is Adama's wife. The horror elements are handled well, but like I say, this doesn't make a lot of sense. For example, why kill the humans only to then have them mutate into the aliens and then have them hunt the remaining humans? If all the humans are going to die because of the bioweapon anyway, why go to all the effort of mutating them? Just kill them. Second, it's heavily implied in the pilot movie that Adama saw a body. He refused to let Apollo look, and when asked, he answered that his wife was present with certainty. Having her be here not only contradicts the movie, but it also stretches credibility somewhat. That of the few survivors to make it off Caprica after the attack, one of them would be a lead character's wife. Still, there are nicely handled character moments. When Elia asks about her kids, Boomer pauses for a second, but then does the decent thing and doesn't mention that Zack is dead. He also promises to never tell Adama, Athena or Apollo what he saw. He blows the ship up, ending the plague, and we get a really nice melancholic ending, unusual for the series. Despite the issues I had with the story, I felt the character moments made up for them, and this was a decent change of pace. Next issue, we are promised Forbidden Fruit, but that doesn't happen until issue 17. Issue 16 is my favourite issue of the series, bar none. Berserker is written by Mackenzie and Simonson, but Simonson also handles the pencils, inks and colours. The cover by Simonson is spectacular. The Cylon Mark III, there is no comparison, reads the cover copy. There's a huge symbolic head of the Mark III Cylon, which resembles a regular Cylon, in that it has red eyes, which presumably go hoo-hoo, but has two of them, instead of the regular Cyclopean appearance of the regular types. So he's kind of bridging the gap between Lucifer and the regular Cylons. It also wears a purple scarf, evoking some World War I fighter pilot imagery. The cover is very busy and should be cluttered, but it isn't. It is, in fact, very, very, very good. 
The issue is another fast-paced adventure in which the Galactica seeks Tylium, the fuel they need to power their starships. They find a planet potentially rich in Tylium deposits, but a silent intruder alarm sounds and Adama orders a blocking field to be thrown up, although blocking the signal means also blocking fleet communications. A Viper Patrol learns that the transmitter is electronically linked to an explosive charge at the heart of the planet, and a Bob Squant is sent to disable the signal. An unknown ship suddenly appears, and the pursuer reveals himself to be a Mark III Cylon, an Imperator, designed and built by the Imperious Leader himself. Only seven of these Mark III's were created, but the Imperious Leader marooned them on a far-off world, fearing they were too smart and would revolt. After an intense battle, Apollo cons the Imperator into an active lava flow. Several weeks later, after the fleet has mined the planet and left, the Cylon Mark III emerges from the lava. With numerous destroyed Vipers strewn across the surface, he believes he can rebuild a fully functioning fighter craft. He just needs a little time. I think I've devoted a lot more time to this one issue because not only is it my favourite issue, but I think it's the best issue. Not only is there a lot going on with tons of action-packed moments, character scenes and a decent plot, but there's also a lot of mythology in this one story. The idea of a better breed of Cylon is intriguing and the plot is much tighter and better structured than arguably even the best episodes of the show. Simonson sets everything up in the first couple of pages and pays it all off later. Granted, the comics have no budget, whereas the TV show's over-reliance on stock footage became its biggest sticking point. The story, which isn't really overly ambitious for a comic, would probably have cost a season's worth of budget on TV. Simonson is also an excellent science fiction artist, and his work here is every bit the equal of what he did on Star Wars. The colours are also gorgeous, with the red planet, the jet-black background, and the wonderfully portrayed spacescapes. Simonson's pacing is again wonderful, with the Viper Cylon battle being fast-paced and more exciting than everything on TV. I was highly amused that there is a colonial warrior with the name Hannibal in an issue where there is no Starbuck. Simonson even slips in a gag at the expense of the show. One of the disadvantages of the constant use of stock footage was that the colonial warriors were seen to hit reverse on their thrusters and braking flaps, allowing the Cylons to overshoot them, and then the Vipers would attack the Cylons from behind. The first time they did this trick, it was fun. After they did it in every third episode, you start wondering how the Cylons actually managed to destroy the colonies, being as they were so fracking dense. Here, Simonson hangs a lovely lantern on this. Apollo tries this manoeuvre, cockily thinking, eh, this always works, only to have the Mark III not fall for it, mock Apollo for even trying it, and then nearly blast Apollo out of the sky for his arrogance. Overall, this is a stellar issue. Marvel's Galactica series managed to take the idea the series did tons of times, Apollo crash lands on a planet, and amps it up to the nth degree. The Cylon threat here is far greater than any of the characters faced on the series. He can actually shoot straight for one, and the aerial dogfights are magnificently rendered. The added danger to the fleet, such as the lengths they have to go to just to find food and fuel, is something the original series glossed over, but the, the reimagined series would come back to time and time again. Along with such things as the different makes of Cylons and recurring plot things, I do wonder if Ron Moore ever read the Galactica comics. Simonson's art is great, his expressive face is gloriously rendered, and his tech is wonderful, with the Vipers especially looking sleek and impressive. The comic also manages to run subplots through the stories with references to Starbuck's fate. The series would never have taken Dirk Bennett's out of the picture for this long, although, again, the reimagined series did exactly this. We even have an open-ended epilogue which sets up a sequel that would never come. The Mark III survives and plans to use the six Vipers it shot down to build one functioning Viper, as Starbuck did in the Galactica 1980 episode The Return of Starbuck. Had the comet ran further, this could have given the fleet another enemy to have to contend with. Another possibility, however, is that the Mark III Cylon would regroup with the other six prototypes and engage in a civil war with the Cylon Empire, as they have every reason to hate the Imperious leader more than the humans. Both of these ideas are intriguing, but sadly would never amount to anything. After this issue, though, the next two-part story is a bit of a letdown. 
Stephen Grant takes over for scripting duties from the departed Roger McKenzie and concocts a story that reworks an issue of Marvel's cancelled Tarzan series into a Galactica story. Not entirely successfully. Marvel would also do this with an issue of Star Wars, which was cannibalised from the cancelled Warlord of Mars book. Ape and Essence and Forbidden Fruit is published in issues 17 and 18, and the reworked segments of art by Sal Buscema, although Simonson presumably did art alterations. The plot sees the Galacticans trying to find food on a planet populated by red ape creatures. The crew find out that the fruit on the planet is causing men to mutate into the ape creatures when the biologist Dr. Enoch eats some of it whilst examining it for suitability. Enoch steals a viper and takes out Apollo's patrol, consisting of Athena, Cassiopeia and Sapphire, showing the Galactica has kept up the training of the female pilots after Lost Planet of the Gods. The three ladies crash on the planet, and this is where it gets silly, as Apollo becomes Tarzan, swinging around on tree branches and leaping from vine to vine. The story goes for poignancy at the end, and it's to Grant's credit that he pulls this off as well as he does, but again, this feels more like a Space 1999 story than an issue of Battlestar Galactica. Issue 19, though, is back on track. The cover, which states, not that you've missed him, but Starbucks back, is a beautiful piece of design work. In Starbucks' silhouetted profile, a small shuttle makes a rather haphazard beamline for the Galactica's landing bays. The story, entitled The During Escape of the Space Cowboy, once again sees Simonson write and draw, but Jansen is back on inks. Surprisingly, the events of the last two issues are followed up on. The Galactica is still in orbit around the Forbidden Fruit Planet and have found a way to harvest the food, replenishing the Argo ships and the food stores. Adama is losing faith that he will ever be able to decipher the runes he found on Kobol and Apollo is trying to make him feel better about it. The opening is just character work and it's all the better for it. The plot kicks in on page 6 when a Viper patrol spots an unknown vessel heading directly for the Galactica. The vessel is unarmed, so the Vipers escort it in, and Boxy is sure that it's Starbuck. Dialogue is fun and witty in places. I've already mentioned that I think Ron Moore read the comic, and there's more evidence of that here. The comic frequently has members of the fleet refer to Adama as the old man, something never done on the original show, but done all the time on the newer version. Simonson mounts the tension as the ship comes in hot, burly holding it together as it lands. The entire crew hold its breath, hoping that it's Starbuck, but they know it cannot possibly be. Can it? Of course it can. Starbuck apparently has news of Earth's location, and simply had to bring it back to the fleet. What follows is one of the single funniest stories put together for a licensed comic book. Starbuck tells the tale of how he heroically returned to the Galactica, whilst the art tells the true story. It's a genuinely amusing piece of storytelling, and one can only wish that Dirk Benedict had gotten something this meaty to play on the show. Only Apollo smells a rat, and this is confirmed when he receives a communique, a fleet of warships approaching the Galactica from Scavenge World. Easily my second favourite issue of the run. Starbuck is charming and amusing, Apollo completely sceptical, Boxy sweet and funny, Adama's reaction to Starbuck is delightful, and the art and tension beautifully handled. If you only read one issue of the Galactica series, it's this one. Issue 20 continues the Eurail storyline. Hell Hath No Fury sees Apollo and Starbuck try to deal with Eurail reasonably, whilst Adama orders Shadrach to take a look at Starbuck's ship and see what, if anything, they can glean from it concerning Earth and Starbuck's reports. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Jolly, a minor character on the show, is tasked with an undercover assignment to locate who is paying big money for food stores on the black market. Again, the black market would have major storylines in the reimagined show. Apollo and Starbuck then hatch a plan to have Eurail kill him in mortal combat, thus restoring her position on Scavenge World. It's a neat story, if a little pat, and the art seems a little less polished. Of course, it's a trick. With Eurail sent on her way, Starbuck is resurrected, and all is well again. Issue 21 is another semi-fill-in as Simonson takes the month off, and Stephen Grant returns as writer, assisted by Simonson, with Astro City's Brent Anderson joining Klaus Janssen on art. A world for the killing sees the first Cylon attack on the fleet in some time, and Blue Squadron quickly sees them off. 
However, Athena and her Viper simply disappear, and Adama tells the pilots the Cylons were actually 3D constructs, not real raiders. Athena has appeared on a nearby planet, which she learns is Earth. This she is told by Rez, who it turns out is another shape-shifting being of immense power. But he's so old, he's lived so long, all he really wants to do is die. Athena ultimately helps him on his way. This was an interesting story, although again a little too much like another show, in this case Star Trek rather than a Galactica yarn. Still, the comic has given the female characters a lot more to do than the show ever did, so points for that. And the assisted suicide ending is remarkably controversial. Rez also tells Athena he read her mind and fashioned himself a body that was her ideal figure for a lover. His resemblance to a Dharma is therefore slightly disconcerting. Jolly, meanwhile, has roped Boomer into helping him with his spy mission. He's adopted the guise of an Aquarian trader, replete with newly shaved head and top knot, and he's boarded the Burnham in an effort to locate the Black Marketeers. He hooks up with a woman, Lygia, who spots him planting a scanning device on the Burnham's comm systems. But can he trust her? Especially as he seems to recognise her from somewhere. Not the best issue, after a pretty good run, but Simerson returns from issue 22, Black is the Colour of My True Love's Her. It's a title that seems a tad prosaic for Galactica. Apparently it's an old Scottish song, but I've never heard of it. Jolly has taken the name Selenus, and he's with Ligia, or Ligia, who is flirting outrageously with him as they watch the Galactica gather up more food from the jungle planet below. Jolly sadly must blow her off and continue his mission. Over on Galactica, the final supplies have been transported to the Argo ships and the fleet is ready to leap out. Shadrach is trying to give them a direction, but although Starbuck's ship is providing him with some knowledge of the way to Earth, the details elude him. Jolly's investigations, meanwhile, continue apace, and he locates the pirates and how they are getting the illegal food out. He also learns that Lygia is Medea, essentially under the Galactican's equivalent of witness protection after testifying against Yuri. Elsewhere, Apollo, Starbuck and Cassiopeia are taking some R&R on the Rising Star, when Apollo realises that the more affluent members of the Galactica's fleet are nowhere to be seen. Hmm. This is yet another really enjoyable issue. It's pretty typical that the strip really starts hitting its stride in its late teens, just as cancellation was around the corner. The focus on Jolly is nice, but Simonson still gives everyone else something to do, including Boomer. Starbuck has a nice scene with Boxer, and again, the comic has made that character really appealing. The dialogue is amusing, but having Jolly wear a baby's nappy in jail is very, very funny, albeit unintentionally. Medea gets Jolly out of jail, and it turns out she isn't a femme fatale, which was a nice twist. She pegged Jolly as a colonial warrior the minute he came aboard, and she comes clean. She genuinely likes Jolly, and Apollo's being good to her as rubbed off, and she's on the level. The issue ends with the setup for Jolly's final confrontation with the pirates. Walt Simonson himself handles the letters page and announces the end of the comic with the next issue. He also explains his approach to the material and how it differed to the show. He says he isn't really interested in exploring Starbucks' parentage or murder mysteries, as was done on the show. His approach is that this is a story of man's survival against tremendous odds after an almost total extinction-level event. Interestingly, again, this was more the approach of the reboot. I wonder what Simonson thought of the modern version. Issue 23, the final issue and a collector's item, it says on the cover, is the last hiding place. Apollo and Jolly put both of their investigations together whilst working independently. They figure out that a ship right at the edge of the fleet called the Justice is housing all of the rich members of the Galactica's fleet, and they meet up at the Rising Star to confront the pirates. Read today, it's pretty easy to see this as yet another example of the rich screwing over the poor, but that's just subtext. This is really just another rollicking adventure that plays with the continuity and character development far more than the show did. Starbuck provides the key to the way to Earth via symbols, exactly the way Starbuck did in the remake. The Galactica and the fleet make the leap to hyperspace as a Cylon tracking device beeps behind them. The series concludes in a pleasant way. 
We don't find Earth, but we do have a direction, though. Apparently, fans tend to place these comics in between episodes 5 and 6 of the show, and this ties in nicely to the Silence being back on the fleet's heels and moving to a new galaxy in the episode The Lost Warrior. Marvel's Galactic comic came to an end with little fanfare. The series has never been reprinted in its entirety, although, as mentioned, Marvel UK published the series in its Star Heroes pocketbook range, but they ditched the Galactica reprints with issue 12, which reprinted Galactica issue 18. There are two British trade paperbacks from Titan Books, Saga of a Star World, reprinting issues 1 through 5, 15 and 16, and The Memory Machine, which republishes issues 6 through 13. Dynamite Publishing also published an artist's edition of the series, featuring five issues showcasing Simonson's penciled pages. This edition covered issues 16 and 19 through 23. It looks like a really nice book. Neither Marvel nor Universal could really have foreseen Galactica's staying power. Even Ron Moore, when he took over the revamp show for the Sci-Fi Channel, was amazed at the market research that showed how the show had remained in the collective memory of the general public. I think this is due to the film releases. Being at the forefront of the home video market meant the theatrical versions were rented quite frequently, and these film versions were screened on TV here in the UK all the time, from airing on ITV in the 1980s to popping up in many a BBC sci-fi season in the 90s. The Cylon's prominence in the opening credits of the A-Team probably helped as well. Marvel's Galactica comic isn't as well remembered as Star Wars. It's more in the realms of Marvel's adaptations of Logan's Run and Man from Atlantis, remembered only by the readers of the time. But the comic isn't at all bad. Once Simonson and Mackenzie, and later Simonson alone, hit their stride, the book is pretty solid. It often has better stories than the show. The book ended as it had begun. Fleeing from the Cylon tyranny, the last battle star, Galactica, leads a ragtag fugitive fleet on a lonely quest for a shining planet called Earth. If you're interested in more Galactica, Shaz Bazaar and Scott Rifen did Colonial Movers, a classic Galactica podcast, where they did audio commentaries for every single episode of the show in this, its 40th anniversary year. Thanks especially to Shag Matthews, who suggested the idea of covering Galactica's comment in a chat on Facebook. I had got it penciled in for covering at some point, but he kind of prompted it along. We'll be back after this commercial with your messages. Uh, I don't know. Modern day comics just don't seem to have the magic the older ones did. I wish I could go back to those days. What? What the? Wait, you're me! But, but I'm me! How is this possible? I'm you! from the future. What happens to my voice? Oh, well, uh, actually, I kind of was eating peanuts before I came back, and uh, one of them went down the wrong tube. I'm still trying to get it out, actually. <coughs> Nothing. Well, still, the future must be terrible. I mean, your hair's half burnt off. Oh, well, actually, I tripped and fell over the stove. What about the scar on your face? It's a paper cut. And the eye patch? I was looking through a telescope and accidentally pointed at the sun. Look, I have a reason for being here. I built a time machine so you can go back to the past and check out the comics of yesteryear. I figure you'll either enjoy the good old days or you'll gain an appreciation for the current comics. Maybe both. Can I bring some friends with me? Sure, but only one at a time. Well, there you have it. Join me, Mike Staley, and an assortment of co-hosts as we look over the world of DC Comics from half a century ago in my new monthly podcast, DC 50 Years Ago. Who are you talking to? Uh, Don't worry about it. 
Just check out DC 50 Years Ago on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called, and at dc50yearsago.podomatic.com. Seriously, who are you talking to? Put the potty cheesecake jelly bean boom. Okay, I'm going to be jumping around the email sack because I've got tons of them, which is a good problem to have, but a lot of them are for Nathaniel Wayne because he's been catching up with the show. So I'm going to split those up into different episodes, if that's all right with Nathaniel. Nathaniel's first mail that came through was Sequest Disappointing Substandard Viewing, which probably sums up what he thought about Sequest DSV. Hey there, Andy. Jumping around the episodes I haven't got to, and I opted to take a listen to your revisit of, revisit, sorry, of Sequest DSV. It was a show I always knew more by reputation than anything else. I remember having a friend at school who liked it, but the one time I saw any of it, I was distinctly ungrabbed. No idea what season it was, but I remember Shida, so it'd have to be one of the first two. I think trying on some level to be an undersea Star Trek, which it seemed to be marketed as, regardless of what the actual creator's goal was, is an inherently flawed concept. As you pointed out, the sea is finite, and while much of it remains unexplored, what could actually be in those unexplored depths is pretty limited, especially if you're trying to do anything close to realistic. On a show like Star Trek, each new planet offered a whole new possibility in terms of what might be found there. By comparison, Sequest DSV is like Star Trek if they never actually went to any planets and just potted around in space the whole time. Side note, I don't know if any of the other listeners called you out on this, but just in case, while you correctly credited Rockney S. O'Bannon as the creator of Farscape, you incorrectly credited him as the writer of Alien. I have to assume that you confused him with the late Dan O'Bannon, no relation between the two that I was able to find. I wouldn't be surprised if you got other feedback pointing this out, but I'm not about to hold this feedback while I check. Keep up the great work. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne, Council of Geeks, since I'm too lazy to figure out a better place to stick in the plug. So it's just going straight to the end. Oh, always nice to have the plug. No, no one else pointed that out. That was a genuine mistake. Yeah, I confused Rodney O'Bannon with Dan O'Bannon. Apologies to both gentlemen. Granted, one of them's dead, so he probably doesn't Cur too much that some no-mark chancer on a podcast got him mixed up with somebody else. Weird that two writers named O'Bannon aren't related, though, but, you know, it's a big world. Uh, our next email, Jason Trenner, Joe 90. Uh, hi, greetings, Andy. Joe 90 was something I was completely unaware of. It definitely wasn't used in the second Doctor novel, The Indestructible Man, with many other Jerry Anderson properties. You talked about how different Joe 90 was given it had people die and the main character shot and was so different from cartoons of the 80s. Well, there are a number of shows that fit more in the Jerry Anderson mould. The first is a 70s mecha show called Zambot 3. The others would be Go Lion, which is the basis for the Lion Voltron. It's a shock it ever got edited for release given how gory it was. The up-and-coming Nickelodeon Star Trek cartoon will apparently be a bunch of teenagers finding an old Starfleet ship and taking it, so I guess the kids taking centre stage thing isn't quite as dead as it seems on first glance. I just wonder if any of the Kelvin timeline aliens we see in Starfleet will be used in that show, as there were some very nice ones in those movies. I, I think you're kissing goodbye to the Kelvin timeline. I mean, there has been rumours recently that uh, whoever it is who is um, currently coming along. I don't even... I can't remember the name. I'm really sorry, and I can't be bothered looking up because I'm lazy. But somebody's coming along who's trying to consolidate all of CBS back into one place, which basically means that the Star Trek camp... Because apparently, in a really, really stupid move, Paramount have put the TV stuff and the film stuff into different divisions. And you're like, I'm just shaking my head at the inept stupidity of that decision making. So hopefully this person will be able to recombine the two. And that will give us a Star Trek that can be all encompassing again. But uh, thank you, Jason. Thank you for emailing in. Uh, Shane Anderson has emailed in. Palace of Glittering Delights, Doctor Who. Hello, Andrew. Um, hello, Andre. I don't know who Andre is. Hello, Andrew. I'm going to disagree with you about the changing the Doctor's gender. But let's see if I can do it in a way that doesn't fall into the annoying social justice warrior whiner camp. I'll be upfront here. I don't like seeing the male Doctor become a female. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. It's not because I don't like female-led shows. I own and enjoy all seven seasons of Star Trek Voyager with Captain Janeway and all five seasons of the Sarah Jane Adventures which in many ways is essentially Doctor Who with a female lead. The problems with the last two Star Wars movies I have are nothing to do with Rey, who is turning out to be a good character. I've stayed with sci-fi examples here because that's the genre that Doctor Who falls into, but it would be easy to expand outwards into other genres. But for Doctor Who, for me, it comes down to two things. 
Simple personal preference. I like the Doctor as a male character and I've no desire to change that. Since it has changed, the show and I are parting ways, for now. I see it as similar to how I quit reading the New Adventures or the EDAs when the 90s when I didn't like the direction they took. To be a fan of Doctor Who does not mean I have to like or agree with or support every aspect of the current show. I can still enjoy my old episodes and can always come back if the show takes a direction that I think I will enjoy again. I am breaking in to this email. That's fine, Shane. I have a lot more respect for people who will say this isn't for me and walk off and just not watch it and not badmouth it and not slag it off and not make videos about how everybody's ruining their entertainment for them. If it's not working for you and you have the courage of your convictions to say, well, I'm just not going to watch this anymore. There's, there's 50 years worth of Doctor Who that I can go and watch. There's novels that I can go and read that I may never have read before. Like you say, I've, I never watched the Sarah Jane Adventure. I think I watched two episodes. I watched the first one and I watched the one with Matt Smith in it. So there's, there's five years of that show that I could go and explore if the current Doctor Who wasn't doing anything for me. I have no issue with people that dislike the direction the show has gone in for legitimate reasons. And if your legitimate reason is, well, I just don't like them changing the gender. That just makes it not for me. That's fine. You're not banging on on YouTube or Twitter or wherever the hell people like this bang on about how women are ruining everything and the gender and and all that bullshit. You have taken a more adult stance. That's fine. I have no problem with that. So you and I have no issues. The way the gender change was set up is my other problem, continues Shane. I've asked myself if there was any scenario that changed the Doctor into a woman that I would have accepted, given my personal preference, and I think there is. If the new regeneration cycle that Matt Smith's Doctor was given had been explicitly said to be different from the first all-male one, maybe for reasons related to the Time War or something, such a scenario would have been faithful to what we'd always seen regeneration to be up to that point whilst changing things for the future. As a long-term fan, I felt the show talked down to me whilst laying the groundwork for the gender change by retconning the idea that it was always like this when it clearly wasn't. It's not disrespectful to Jodie Whittaker for anyone to prefer a male doctor. By definition, any fictional character is obviously not real, and every attribute of that character, gender included, comes from someone's imagination. So it's all someone's preference to choose one attribute and discard another. That's why I always try to confine my discussion to the character and the fiction, not the actress herself. I think that distinction has to be made. Again, I'm breaking in. Again, we have no problem with that. My issue... Go on YouTube... Look up any one of these videos and then go through the comments. The amount of personal attacks on Jodie Whittaker from everything, God, she's so dumb, to I can't understand a word she says because of her accent. That's attacking the actress. And if you can't understand her, that's your problem, not hers. Sorry, accents exist. Deal with it. So you choosing to take the stance that this is not the actress's fault, you are not blaming the actress for this change. Essentially, all Jodie Whittaker's done there is take a job. That's fine. And again, you and I have no problems. I know this has been a long email and most of it is subjective, but how can it not be? It's a discussion of fiction, so it's all about personal likes and preferences in the end. Take care, and as always, great show. Shane Grenville, USA. Well, thank you, Shane Anderson. I am not objecting to people having opposing viewpoints. All I ask is that people with those opposing viewpoints, like you did, write a respectful email explaining why. And ultimately, I don't think we're that far away. I don't mind the change. Doctor Who fan of long-standing doesn't bother me in the slightest. I think the show is actually much better than a lot of people are giving it credit for. It is certainly better than Tom Baker's penultimate season, which, other than City of Death, contains an inordinate amount of dreck. And it's certainly better than Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy's first years. It's better than Colin Baker's overall years, but... You know, whatever. Um, if you've chose to walk away from it because of the change, that's fine. Because again, you're not blaming the actress or the producers or hate watching the show. I cannot abide hate watching. Simply because I wish I had the time to hate watch something. I wish I had the time to waste doing that kind of activity. And even if I did, I still wouldn't do it. Do you know? So I have a lot more respect, like I say, for people who go, it's not for me anymore, and just walk away. 
that's fine. You and I should share a drink. I think we'd have interesting conversations. And that about wraps it up for today, because as usual, I am recording this on a Tuesday evening when I have to go off and do other stuff, and it is rapidly approaching that time. Thank you everyone who's emailed in, particularly the people I did on this show, which was Shane, Jason, and Nathaniel. Lots of emails coming up. Thank you guys for emailing in. I love when people email in. Um, I always try to do feedback on the show, as you guys know, so that you get your time in the sun. So if you're going to take your time to email me, I give you the time on the show because that's the way it works because I am exceptionally appreciative of anyone who listens to this drivel. Okay, as ever, you too can email me like Shane. Email. That's a bit sexist, isn't it? She mail me. <laughs> you too can. Oh, I can hear people moaning about that now. You too can email me. Uh, like Nathaniel, Jason, and Shane at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. But it's all gonna be okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Barely kept a straight face when I said that. I'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>